The big idea actually is a Bible passage. The big idea is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, which is rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And the psalm we're going to look at is Psalm 34. We'll be there in a moment. Before we do, I want to tell you a little bit about my mother-in-law, Karen. And some of you already know this, but Corinna's named for her and actually by her. Uh, when Karen passed away, we had Gabby as a baby, and Karen predicted that we would have another daughter and asked if she could name her. So she named her Corinna, which is very special. So it's Karen, and she added an A at the end, and it's Corinna, which, by the way, means pure. Well... Karen, even when I met Janelle, uh, had already had a lot of health struggle. She had, had uh, lived with brain tumors for quite a few years. Um, she had uh, lupus, which is a painful uh, nerve disease. She had a double mastectomy for having breast cancer. And Karen had been through a lot. And she was a widow as well. And I, I would say that Karen was dying for probably almost two years. She would get really, really sick, and then Janelle or her sister would rush up to Canada, and, and this is it, this is it. Some of you have been through something like this. You know just what I'm talking about. And then she'd rally, and it would, she'd come back and get back, even get back home sometimes, and, and, uh, and maybe even for a month or two or three, and then back in the hospital. This happened back and forth for, like I say, probably about two years. And Karen had a pastor there that uh, was, was uh, actually the same pastor that married Janelle and I, and uh, he, uh, he said that Karen kept asking, do I have joy? Am I showing that I have joy? Through all of that she was going through, her concern was, do I have joy? Am I projecting joy to the world, even in that circumstance? The answer was yes, yes she was, and even up until she was no longer um, conscious, she had joy. It is a powerful testimony of her faith. So as we look at Psalm 34 this morning and we consider that, that we need to take like David did and like so many others and like Karen did and adopt an intentional attitude of praise, an intentional attitude of joy and prayer. And so... That's what we're going to look at as we get into this psalm, as David lists many things and reasons why we can have that joy. So right before verse 1, uh, it says in the ESV at least, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, 
Uh, I don't even remember how far it's been back now that I finished going through the book of 1 Samuel, but it was before we went through Romans, so I know it's a while back. So you may remember this, but in 1 Samuel chapter 21, there's this incident where David goes and acts like a crazy man. And I'll read that to you from 1 Samuel 21, starting at verse 10. Uh, it's, it's when David was fleeing from Saul, and he gets to Gath, and, and they recognize him as David, the conquering David, the powerful. And now all of a sudden he's like, oh no, my life's going to be in danger. So his, he gets this idea to act like he's going nuts. So let's read that. It says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was, very much, af- and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle, I think that might be the only place where spittle's in my Bible, but he let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And then in, verse 20, or in chapter 22, it continues, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went there to him. So this is the, the time when, when this psalm was written. David was a hunted man. He was under all kinds of pressure. And he was, uh, you know, in fear for his life even. And this is the conditions in which he wrote this. You know, it's interesting. Some of our favorite passages of Scripture often are written by people who are in a very tough situation. Paul wrote from prison, and we, we have the wonderful epistles that he wrote there. And, and we have so many good things that were written by folks who were in just devastating circumstances. Now, this, uh, there's a, this is the second psalm. 20, Psalm 25 is the first one. That's what's called an acrostic. Uh, so written in the original Hebrew, each line of this would have started with a letter in the order of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's really hard for English translators to get this, and some have tried to do it with the ABCs, but it just never really works out. But if you were able to read it in Hebrew and you knew the Hebrew language, you would see that acrostic. And, and you would enjoy that there's real poetry and thought that went into this. Uh, but that's nearly impossible to render in the English. So anyway, this first verse, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, I know an elderly Christian who was a wonderful example to me. And he loved this passage of Scripture. Psalm 34, you could say, was maybe his life passage or whatever you want to call that. And every morning when his feet hit the floor, before he even stood up, he would quote the first part of Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be 
shall continually be in my mouth, or his praise will always be on my lips, your translation might say. And you may have some other variety of that. So let's look at some of the wording here. Bless, the word bless here, it requires humility. So the, the humble person is the one that's able to acknowledge the greatness of another. A not humble person is not able to do that. Because a not humble person is usually unable to see uh, anyone else's greatness, or at least they don't want to admit, admit it. But the one who realizes their own lowliness magnifies the great. And I read when I started out that what I said was the big idea from 1 Thessalonians 5, give thanks in all circumstances, at all times, continually. And so that example I gave you of the elderly saint every morning when his hit, hit for years and years and years and years, when his fit, feet hit the floor, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will ever be on my lips or continually be on my, in my mouth. This is a person who knows the greatness of God's gift. Compared to any circumstance, Knowing of eternal security causes the one with saving faith to be able to praise God, no matter what's happening. And that is the beautiful testament of our faith when the world looks at you and says, you're nuts, how can you be in a good mood with what just happened, whatever it might be? This is why we've been given a hope. Those of us who have a saving faith in Jesus Christ despite what goes on in our life and the difficulties we encounter, can say with David, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. The next verse, verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. What can we boast about? Now Paul said, some things about boasting, and you probably remember some of that, but his point was, we boast in what the Lord has done. I even boast because I'm weak, Paul said, because that shows how strong he is. I'm weak, but he's still using me. Praise God. It's his glory. I boast in the Lord. And then the humble, they hear and they're glad. It's simply impossible it's an impossibility for the arrogant one who sees no error in his own ways, who sees no danger in his offenses, who therefore sees no need for a Savior. It's impossible for that person to receive the gift of God. Absolutely impossible until the Holy Spirit does the work of helping us to understand our sad position if we don't have Christ. But the humble... The ones who can admit, I am a sinner. The ones who can say, yeah, I have made a lot of mistakes. The one who can say, I still need Christ daily, even though he saved me. The one who understands not only the mercy and grace of God in their initial faith, but an ongoing need for that same mercy and grace. And the one who has a trust in the word of truth, that when it promises that those who have a saving faith are sealed, by the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians chapter 1. Those who have the humility to accept that gift and 
they can have the confidence then to have gladness in their heart. Verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. We don't seek to magnify ourselves. We magnify God. How can we magnify the great God, though? How, how, is that, how could we even do that? Is he not already magnified? Well, he is. But not perfectly in our lives. And so we continue to speak, to sing, to shout even praises and give him words of honor and actions of honor and works of honor. When we live in obedience to the commands of Christ, we prove our love to him. And when we live in this way, it magnifies his name. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my how many times have we ourselves needed deliverance? How many times have we learned of the testimonies of others who have seen God do a wonderful thing? How many times have we sought the Lord and know of his answer and deliverance? This is first and foremost to be applied to salvation, but we may be reminded that regarding salvation, Paul wrote, we who are being saved. I remember the first time I... That verse caught my attention when I was younger. We who are being saved, I thought we were saved. And Paul says we who are being saved. It's an ongoing process. It's a life, as Luther said, of being in constant repentance for our sins. And we continue to trust. We continue to call out. And by God's grace, he preserves those who he has brought into his kingdom. Because we wouldn't be able to preserve ourselves. We know that. Sometimes we might feel that we're too sinful. Or too broken or too messed up. Or we feel we have failed him too much to call out to him. Or we're ashamed of our lack. Ashamed of our offenses against God. And we're all too aware of our own wretchedness. But instead of allowing that sense of wretchedness to stop us from seeking the Lord... In those times, even more so, do we need to call out to him and trust in his deliverance. Charles Spurgeon ha said this, and it, I'll have it on the screen for you. We may seek God even when we have sin. If sin could blockade the mercy seat, it would be all over for us. But the mercy is that there are gifts even for the rebellious and an advocate for men who sin. What do you fear? Ultimately, all fear can be rooted back to our own sin. Did you know that? All fear ultimately is a lack of faith, a lack of trust, and rooted back to our own sin. We fear we won't be forgiven or Having not chosen to receive the grace of God, our sin ruins us from the inside out. And what must we have? We must have a realization of our problem. A humility to know we're helpless to save ourselves. And finally, to cry out to God with all of our strength and seek his deliverance. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant 
and their faces shall never be ashamed. I've known Christians who have this radiance. You see them. I talked about Karen a moment ago, my mother-in-law. My father-in-law, Jim, was one. He had this twinkle in his eyes all the time. You know why? He couldn't stop talking about how Jesus was coming again and how he looked forward to the new Jerusalem. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now they know they're sinners. They're well aware of their wretchedness. They know full well how much they've disappointed themselves. They've disappointed God. They've disappointed others and yet they are radiant. Why? Because they look to him. And when we look to him, all of our faults melt away in his light as he cleanses us with the blood of Christ and we have faces unashamed, not because we did well, but because we receive the righteousness of Christ. We receive his righteousness in exchange for him receiving our wretchedness. Verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. Out of all his troubles. Now, the question some have written on this particular verse is, is David talking about himself, this poor man like this? Or is he pointing to someone out in the crowd who he knows their testimony and saying, "Eh, this poor man cried out? Well, there's folks that have taken that both ways. And we know from our own situations and from the testimonies we've heard that many have cried and many have been saved from their troubles. I could read this verse and apply it personally. Absolutely. And I could apply it to many who I have heard give witness to the greatness of God in saving the humble from their troubles. Verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him delivers them what a wonderful thought we have an example of this we don't see with our earthly eyes what god is actually doing at all times to protect us to keep us safe but we get a glimpse of this in second kings chapter 6 verse 15 to 17 and we're talking about elisha here when the servant of the man of god who is elijah rose early in the morning and went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Is God different today? Scripture says explicitly, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you believe in what you cannot see? Do you believe what Scripture promises? Who can attack the Lord's man or the Lord's woman and succeed? Satan himself could do nothing for Job, to Job unless God first removed the, what Satan even used, the word, you have a hedge of protection around him. And he knew that he couldn't step over that. Whatever afflictions we do receive in our spiritual battles are, 
only those that are allowed by God. And even then, he provides heavenly protection. No one can harm the man of God without his allowing it. And even then, no one can take away our salvation gift. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And this, of course, is where the title of the message came from. Now, if you traveled, we've probably all done this, and we, someone talked you in, if you're like me, you maybe had to be talked into trying a new food. And you thought, wow, that blew my mind. I didn't think it was going to be very good. I, I didn't expect it would taste like that or something like that. And if you got back home and you're trying to explain this to your friends and your family who had never tried that before, no description that you can give them would help them to really truly know the taste of it. Even if you brought them to the place where you found that food and where you had eaten it and showed it to them and they could look at the plate, they still would not know. They have to taste it for themselves. The proof of the pudding is in the tasting. And one who never chooses to receive or to taste the Lord will never understand. Why is it that the unsaved mock believers? Why do they roll their eyes at our peacefulness or shake their heads at our eternal confidence? They have not tasted to see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. No one can discourage no one can take away the joy or the peace from the one who takes refuge in the Lord. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Now, is this a fear that keeps someone terrified and hiding from the Lord as Adam and Eve did in the garden after sinning? No, it's not a fear like that. It's not a fear of communion with God, but a fear of losing communion with God. Sin separates man from God, and fear of losing that relationship with Him, and studying His Word and learning His truths because of an awesome reverence and respect and desire for that relationship. Those things can protect us by keeping us in humble submission to Him. I want to I just reiterate that because I think that's, that's an important thing. Adam and Eve ran because they were, fear, they were in fear of being near God because of their sin. We don't want that kind of fear to keep us from God and hide from Him. He knew where they were anyway and He knows where you are. Rather, let a fear of losing your relationship with the Lord drive you to get into Scripture learn his truths, and figure out what it is that you can do to have a good relationship with him. Verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good things. Now it's interesting, he talks about lions here, and, and uh, I want to offer a different perspective to lions than we sometimes have. Um, you know, the lion is the king of beasts, right? But lions, the young, don't have it so easy. They have to scavenge. 
Who gets the first share of the kill? The big lions, right? The little ones have to figure out. You know, they, they are carnivores. Maybe they are the king of the beasts, but they have a miserable existence. They can go hungry for a long time. They can be hunting and miss their target. Or they can have their teeth kicked out by hooves. They have to fight for territory. As far as kings go, the lions are kind of miserable. And many people fashion themselves as lions. And they see themselves as the ones above all the other creatures. But such a position is actually not what it seems to be, but it's rather filled with constant posturing and fights and misery. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Do they lack not good things? Perhaps. We should trust in God enough to know that what he does not allow us to have was not the best thing for us. If we don't get into the college of our choice or the job we want or our high school sweetheart as a lifelong partner, then do we trust God that his best for us was not what we thought we wanted? But we who seek the Lord lack no good thing. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. That might not include your dream house. But he knows what's good for us. Do you trust him to know? Verse 11, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. It's interesting that David's saying here he wants to teach the children not how to play this game, not how to hunt or fish, throw the spear, something like that. He isn't saying, pay attention as I regale you with the ins and outs of palace politics. No, he wants to teach them to fear the Lord. Makes me wonder if his son Solomon remembered that when he said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Verses 12 to 14, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Some people may not get their many days, but if we should want that, we're warned to keep our tongue from evil and our lips from deceit, to turn from evil and do good, to seek peace, even pursue it. That means chase it down, hunt it, go after it. Of course, we're not all guaranteed a long earthly life. And we also know that many people live to a ripe old age who have not followed these precepts. But as many Proverbs remind us, we can have more confidence in our lives and our eternal future when we learn to follow God's word. Verses 15 and 16, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Here's one of these great contrasts. We often see this in Hebrew poetry. You see it in a lot of the Psalms where you see uh, something said here and then the opposite said here. It's, it's a way of reinforcing a lesson, right? So it's one option produced and followed by the opposite. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears toward their cry. His face is against those who do evil. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. 
we know that Scripture affirms there are none righteous, right? So if there's none righteous, then who does this verse 17 apply to? It can't apply to anyone, right? When the righteous cry for help, but then we know the Scripture says there's no righteous. What do we do with that? How do you become righteous? By putting faith in Jesus Christ. His righteousness imputed unto us. We know that Scripture says there's no righteous. That's true. At least not on our own or because of good works or anything like that. But if, if any are righteous, it's because they inherit the righteousness of Christ. Those are the ones Jesus prayed for in John 17 and said not one of them would be lost. He's the deliverer. He hears the cries for help and he delivers them from troubles. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Have you ever been brokenhearted? Most of us have. Been crushed in spirit? Most of us have. From my first Christmas series I did here in 2013 when we were just new to Wagner, we looked at Isaiah chapter 42 and in verse 3 there, it says, A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And what does that represent, the bruised reed? Someone who already feels the gravity and weight of their sin. Knowing that they will break under it on their own. He doesn't just flick them and say, oh, down with you. No. That's right where we need to be, that humble posture that we, need, that we can actually come to him. Because as long as we're still proud, we won't. May we all be a bruised reed before the Lord, that he may not break us, but bring us to himself. Verses 19 and 20, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. You know, some, there's a whole sect of people that uh, pur they purport to be preaching Christian truths, and they tell you, well, if you're a good Christian, nothing bad ever happens to you. It's all good. But Scripture says many are the afflictions of the righteousness, and I could go through uh, at least a dozen New Testament passages right off the top of my head that tell us that if we're going to follow Christ, we're going to have troubles. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. Jesus said, in this world you'll have troubles, but I've overcome the world. David, you know, he, he had been wounded in pride. He was in fear for his life. He'd been roughed up a little, but he had no broken bones could have been worse even after what he went through and of course this is considered to be a prophetic word as well and it's applied to Jesus on the cross as well verses 21 and 22 affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned the Lord redeems the life of his servants none of those none of those none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And I couldn't think of a better way to close that than to go to 
one of the more famous passages that most people in the church ought to know. John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And go back to Psalm 34, the last verse. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And so as we look at a passage like this and we see from the very first verse that David is proclaiming, remember where he was at, on the run, in a cave, being harassed. And he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will ever be on my lips or continually be in my mouth, depending on your translation. And then he goes to list a bunch of good reasons why we ought to have that same attitude as well. If you are one of his beloved who's put faith in Jesus Christ and a saving faith that believes in him for eternal life, then you ought to be able, like David, in any situation of life to be able to say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. And that's my prayer that we could do the same. Let's finish with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the word that you give us and the encouragement we find often in the Psalms. And throughout all of Scripture, Lord, you continue to drive this message to us. We see it all the way from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, Lord, that you desire for us to repent of all of our sins and put our faith in you for our salvation. And you've showed us the way, Lord. You've showed us the way. Lord, I pray that we would each be encouraged by the message this morning and that we would resolve in ourself to pattern our praise after David and be worshiping you and magnifying you together as he called all believers to do. Inspired by you, Lord, because it's scripture, we know that we can apply it in our own lives as well. And Lord, may our testimony be like that of Karen, who went through some very difficult and miserable circumstances. And yet her concern was to people know that I have joy. May we do likewise, in Jesus' name, amen.